yeah, we just got a great example coming back from the whole slog fest that is Memorial Day weekend in the service industry of classic neoliberal logic. Mm-hmm. Remember, it's not just a term of abuse you throw at like blue checks and idiots with like neolib globes in their um, Twitter bios. It's actually a real thing. <laughs> Though those are, you know, perfectly valid uses for the term. Yes. In this case, um, we've got to talk about this one motherfucker. <laughs> um, the National Post, a paper I've never heard of before, but apparently it's like Toronto's... Uh, Tory graph, I guess. You know, something along that line. In this paper, they found one of their, you know, neolib imbeciles to go, um, we should privatize the parks, actually. Um, municipalities should not be responsible for having all of this useless green space. Everything should be a Starbucks. Or if we have to have that green space, we should charge admissions fees. Yes. Ah, and, of course, he's like, well, you know, there's a, so- a social justice reason because, you know, Memphis had to do that to like get rid of its statues because of, you know... <laughs> Nashville diktat, but it's like it's not like they wanted to do that. And the, this this was, you know, a case of <laughs> really dumb, stupid, racist assholes getting dragged by Black Lives Matter into doing a thing about these like daughters of the confederacy cheap ass participation trophies put in public places yeah but you know apparently this has something to do with you know public parks socialism oh my god we should pave it yeah or fence it it should be a starbucks sponsored parking lot failing that yeah, failing that emissions fees because, you know, the market has to be in everything. The market must enclose everything. I mean, we we bitched about neoliberalism, you know, to start the segment. And there's a reason for that. Because this, this is neoliberalism at its core. Enclosing everything within the market. Every relation must grow through the market, including having green spaces in your cities. Public goods cannot exist. You must pay emissions. (laughs) Everything must be owned because only then will everything be properly managed. Mm Mm-hmm. And no, I'm not making that shit up. You can actually like see that exact quote in the corporation documentary called literally corporation. Um, Mm -hmm. 
from like some big muckety muck economist at that. So, you know, we're not putting words in people's mouths here. Yeah. So, um, not that we need to. <laughs> yeah. So this is chop shop economics. We read this shit. So you don't have to. Um, I'm Miss Silver with me today is Doc Spider. And we have a Patreon, um, patreon.com slash chop shop economics for five bucks a month. You can get access to episodes, um, earlier than usual. And you also get to see our bonus content and pay our server bills. And also pay for us to have our nice equipment and hopefully all kinds of other shit, including things like time to do some really good deep dives for you. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so to kick it off. We got the top of the fold stuff for you in business news and it comes in two parts this time the first is as of uh, june 1st the san francisco federal reserve branch has put out a paper that is calling into question how uh, solid the u.s labor markets recovery actually is yeah i believe their exact word was diverging factors something like that yeah like like they they looked at 26 different labor markets and they went oh normally these variables correlate and now they're not and they're actually sort of like veering off in different random directions for some reason yeah like they started looking at like labor force participation rates um I mean, hell, I, when we started looking through this for the pre-show, I was like, so what's the EPR right now? And I looked, it is currently 57.9%. So it hasn't budged very much. Um, That's as of April. And what that means is, is like the recovery and like the actual labor force participation is pretty low we are building back up to like you know the worst of the great recession in terms of labor force participation in terms of the epr which is like the raw um you know employment population ratio with nothing else considered Like, how many people are actually employed sustaining the population? Um, We're at 57.9. We're sort of recovering, but not really. And (laughs) what the... Yeah. Yeah, what the San Francisco um, Federal Reserve has noticed is like, yeah, 
this is bad. Uh, and most importantly, like, just to give a sense of how bad we're talking here, that they are looking at 26 different labor markets, which is everything from healthcare to service sector to manufacturing, logistics, everything. And they looked at these different markets and went, okay, most of these tend to correlate in particular ways to other ones, which means, you know, if your employment in, say, supply chains goes down meaning people get laid off and stuff then the service sector and retail are probably going to also eat shit for predictable reasons um because if there's less people moving goods and services you know then there's less demand like ability to fulfill demand and so on um instead what we're seeing what they were seeing rather is that labor markets which normally move together like that are not and are behaving in totally unpredictable ways that to the fed they i mean granted this is we haven't seen the full paper yet this is just a release that was seen by reuters first and as soon as we can get a hold of this thing we will dig into it more but you know their initial peak has them going well shit this is bad we're not quite sure why and you know just to throw out an idea there maybe it's because the factors that made it possible for these things to correlate no longer exist which is a lot of words for the bottom is falling out yeah this uh recovery quote unquote that we've been you know kicking around discussing mocking it's not as much of a thing as like the media would like to tell you <laughs> it, it's mostly confidence at this point it's a lot of trying to convince everybody it's safe to go out and spend money again even though it's probably money they either don't have or they went hey i can actually have a savings account yep <sighs> like i wouldn't be surprised if you know for example the bump that's been recorded in personal savings across the board in the United States is in part because student debt payments and interest has been suspended since the crisis began. Yeah. Which means either a lot of people holding that debt have gone, let's pay that down. Or they went, okay, this was a thing I was do going to do with all that money. Yeah. That, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. And Meanwhile, um, in China, we are we are seeing something a little worrying. <laughs> yeah. So, you probably have at some point heard this absolute shit lib nonsense, and not just shit lib, but also centrist and deficit hawk, and it's just you know all over the fucking place, really. About oh my god, China holds so much of America's debt that someday they'll call it in, and well, that's not how sovereign debt works. That's especially not how treasury bonds work. That's really not how having the hegemonic currency of global capitalism works. But you know, <laughs> leaving all those things aside because those things get in the way of being able to justify cutting food stamps without looking like a sociopath. Um, I mean, it was a very popular um, 
conservative conspiracy theory for like most of the great recession (laughs) oh yeah and it was like a pretty common scaremongering about oh my god the holders of foreign debt are going to pull the plug on the u.s so we have to like ease off on the throttle there um (laughs) this is actually a lot closer to that namely that china has just reported their banking sector now holds an estimated one trillion actual u.s dollars not u.s debt or bonds or instruments one trillion dollars yes actual liquid currency and unfortunately you can't really get rid of that easily I mean, what precisely are you going to do with it that isn't going to spook the market? Especially because what's really interesting is Chinese authorities are noting that their, um, their like these banks do not have enough demand for these dollars. That's why they've got a trillion of them collectively. Mm-hmm. And that means, guess what? Because this is how finance works. If you have quantity of any currency, you can securitize it. You can mortgage it. You can turn it into the foundation for a line of credit. You can leverage it. You can basically use dollars to breed dollars outside of the u.s economy government everything yeah and basically at this point this is how to put this this is limiting their options in terms of what they can do with their um with their banking strategy, with their foreign exchange, all of that stuff. Um, And, you know... It's even putting pressure on the value of Chinese currency and pushing it up, which is a problem because part of how Chinese exports have stayed cheap is by some really impressive sleight of hand around exchange rates. Oh, yeah. And this is like, you know, a consequence of holding a trillion dollars of a trillion US dollars is that like there is a natural currency pressure that you can't really avoid I mean what are you going to do? Sell off all your dollars? (laughs) I mean you can I guess but if you do shit's gonna blow up (sighs) like you can't just dump that money into the market without it seriously deflating the value of the US dollar on a large scale and more importantly if you do that it will trigger a crisis of confidence in the dollar um full stop and this by the way is a thing that's happened before 
where an accumulation of actual dollars outside of the United States created a financial market that was capable of spinning dollars basically out of thin air and creating a devaluation crisis. It was called the euro dollar market, and it was one of these main factors in why Nixon eventually pulled the U.S. off of the gold standard in 1971 and suspended dollar convertibility, thus destroying this thing called Bretton Woods, yeah. among many other things. So, you know, what we're talking about here, this isn't just like a couple of anarchists on the internet getting a wild hair and looking for an excuse to say it's all fucked. <laughs> Because this exact scenario has made things all fucked. Yeah. Like, there is, there's no good way out of this for China. There's no good way out of this for the U.S. China's got more options, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> and like Again, this is like a thing we've come back to quite a few times is the U.S. just doesn't have any good options or at least the good options it has requires flushing large chunks of the political system down the toilet mm -hmm. and like you know there's there's things that, that can be done but it's like this is this is partially um like what we've been seeing a lot over the past year um year and a half is that for dollars it's like any port in a storm and it turns out that china was the recipient of much of these fleeing dollars of this capital flight like you know it has to go somewhere <laughs> yeah oh my god you gotta do something with it and if you don't well you know mm -hmm. you get this so yeah we got the makings of just yeah all the things doing what they shouldn't be <laughs> which gets us to a comparatively shorter plague news update okay that's about long enough oh boy the india variant of covid19 has been found in oregon Mm -hmm. I would probably find this more alarming if we weren't vaccinating pretty rapidly, but oh boy, that's not good. It's still not good. There's, I mean, even though I'm vaccinated, um, all of our Oregon correspondents are vaccinated. Um, it's not good to have this running out in the open because if it's in Oregon, it's going to be everywhere else fairly soon. And that's just how it works. Yup. 
And yeah, let's remember this is the variant that has granted with several other factors in play brought India's healthcare system to ruin. Yeah. Has done incalculable dam incalculable levels of damage and will probably if it's left unchecked, give a repeat performance. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, again, you know, the Oregon state government seems to be not totally, you know, sniffing glue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like they're, um, they're downplaying a lot of this in part because this is mostly spreading among the unvaccinated who, by definition are every bit as vulnerable as, you know, the broader Indian populace. Um, <laughs> and for what it's worth, the current vaccines around here do seem to be effective, which is what we want to see. It's just, you know, what happens if this breaks through? I mean, this is mostly this is a watch this space sort of thing like the facts of the um, vaccine campaign is stalling out on a larger scale is kind of worrying um and it's gonna take time yeah and you know the cdc rolling back the mask mandate in a very confusing and inconsistent way in some what looks to be desperate bid to get back to normal as quickly as possible is not going to help. Oh, yeah. No. And yeah, basically the what it comes down to as far as what I'm worried about is it's going to take time for the vaccine to go from emergency use only to being fully approved by the FDA and apparently there are quite a few people who are like i'm not taking this until it's you know fully approved and like i said that takes time that takes a few months and what this is kind of reminding us is we may not have those few months if we get the variants you know going berserk And this also gets back to, and this is a thing that we have noted several times on this podcast and looks like is going to be a recurring trend, that you are going to be able to draw the lines between states in terms of their COVID response with backhoes for digging the mass graves. Because states that have not properly clamped down have not ramped up vaccination to the same degree that you're seeing like say for example in um, the state of California where the state government has very directly gotten involved in making sure people get vaccinated Yeah. Um, instead of just leaving it to the shit show that is American healthcare where you pay for your cancer on GoFundMe if you're lucky <laughs> fuck 
I mean, one of the things that honestly worries me a lot is I think the only reason we haven't gotten a, like a huge spike in Texas or something is because nobody has really changed their behavior. Um, you know, people who were masking before are still masking. People who um, didn't do that before still aren't doing it. So, like, because the behavior hasn't changed, there also hasn't been, like, a major spike. But that sort of good fortune can only hold out for so long at these vaccination rates. Especially because there does seem to be evidence from a number of different surveys and accounts that a significant barrier public health officials are seeing around vaccinations and vaccination rates, particularly in those last like 25 to 30% of the population in some places that hasn't been vaccinated much higher in many other places is it's not a problem of lack of access. It's that they're just outright refusing because of take your pick QAnon, anti-vax, COVID is a hoax, you know, throw a dart, Mm -hmm. see where you land. And on the other side of that, no FDA approval. Um, There are places that are letting the insurance companies actually charge for the vaccine um, under like admin fee or lab bullshit. Um, Like theoretically it is supposed to be free in practice. um, I don't think the insurance companies have really gotten the message. And and it also really seems to depend on what state you're in and how serious that state's government is in enforcing that. Because, yeah. you know, I did not get charged for it out here oh, in California. Yeah, near did I. But, like, what I've been hearing in, like, red states is that they are, in fact, charging or attempting to charge... Um, to like recover admin fees and other bullshit and it's like half the point of you know federally making it free is that that wouldn't be a barrier and on top of that like we still do have an access issue like yeah sure in in my home state in my uh, in my city, like, you know, you can just go down to the convention center and get it. But in many of these places, it's like, you know, you got to go to like the county health authority and it's only open during work hours and all that fun stuff. It's access has been a persistent problem in the vaccine rollout. It's not to say that, like, they haven't been trying to, like, make this happen and it's less of a shit show than, like, you know, (laughs) the whole fucking Trump clusterfuck from January, but it's still not great. It's still very frustrating and worrying. Yeah. So, you know, watch this space. 
maybe <laughs> maybe really hoping on this one this will be a footnote yeah you know some people got but, it it happens but it burns itself out that's what we're hoping yeah that that's the hope which gets us quite nicely to uh, a place where we're seeing some surprising amount of hope is in the field of remote work interestingly enough yes In a lot of professions, <laughs> there is a lot of pushback against we need to return to the office five days a week, six days a week. You need to resume your 996 in a crowded building. Um, With the HR people having ready access to your cubicle whenever they fucking feel like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or where the boss is watching every single thing you do in that oh so seemingly pleasant open plan office of yours. Yeah. And yeah, this is a thing that is starting to reach. Well, we got a couple of articles on it. The first one is from Bloomberg. Which is not that surprising, because remember, it is their job to report on these things for the owners of capital from a beware of this bullshit over here perspective. Yeah. And also one from The Guardian. Oh, man, that one was a trip. Yeah. So to give a brief summary of each, the Bloomberg one is pointing out that there is a rising trend among people who are doing remote work who, when they're being confronted with the possibility of having to go back into the office, are point blank saying, and these are in fairly lucrative careers. This isn't like rando, like data entry admin jobs. These are people that are doing like investment analysis and um, bank bullshit and all kinds of stuff that does make quite a bit of money. Mm hmm that are going you know what we might just say fuck it and quit yeah and like there's been a lot of sentiment in my profession of if you're not offering remote work you're a joke like there is a lot more demand for like remote work these days because well I mean what this has proven is that no in fact we don't need to be in the office or at the very least we don't need to be in the office all the fucking time we can do our work from home even in the most boomer of places It, you know, actually funny you mentioned that because one of, I never thought I would see this in Bloomberg, but one of the people they quoted on it 
like directly said quote this feels like a boomer power play so you know calling anything boomer has arrived mm-hmm. in the most mainstream way possible <laughs> nice it will be in the history books people I love it. Yeah. And you like between this and the new shitty boss baby trailers that are going all listen up boomers. It's like, (laughs) what was that Gandhi quote? First they ignore you. Then they ridicule you. Then they fight you. Then you win. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. You know, I mean, it's not dismantling capitalism, but you know, baby steps. Yeah. And meanwhile, there's um, in The Guardian a um, trial balloon of consent manufacture for why everything, why remote work should be banned, actually. Because it's bad for, like, sense making and all of the weird rituals that they use to keep you enslaved in the office. It was just so desperate. They started going into like, well, the IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, the people who like decide, okay, is this new protocol really worth adopting or is it not? They're like, well, you know, our current process doesn't really work because we require in-person gathering. But the article is, the article fails to mention that, like, those are, those activities take place at conferences, at, like, specific meeting days. Like, they're not in the office all the fucking time, is the thing. And then they go off on this whole thing about Xerox bringing in the anthropologists at the recommendation of, like, the Stanford, uh research institute Mm -hmm. like back in the 60s and 70s and they wax eloquent about how all these like technicians got two-way radios which allowed them to exchange information at great distance in a manner reminiscent of social media and it was like the this does this is not making the case you think you are like that these words don't mean what you're saying they do oh yes and then it's like they also tried to justify it based on, well, apparently the um, Wall Street did better because they have like more in-person teams than um, than the Europores did. And it's like, well, first off, the trading floor is not a place of socially useful work. It's what the late David Graeber referred to as a bullshit job. So... Is that generalizable? They don't say. Um, it could be because, like, they'll have an argument here. It could be because this isn't generalizable. I mean, it could be true. We don't know. In fairness to The Guardian for a minute here, mm-hmm. there are, you know, folks from one noble and honorable profession who do benefit from the trading floor, and that's cocaine dealers. That's true. 
and it is kind of rude to go away from you know your zoom terminal and be like you know have your fellow traders listen in and hear you you know getting your shit from your coke dealer like and how are you going to make those necessary connections to get new clients if you can't discreetly meet them out back after they've finished or are about to be starting a long hard day of shouting themselves hoarse yeah in the face of other angry frat boys doing exactly the same thing all day yeah yeah I mean, it's like, just because the trading floor works this way doesn't mean that, like, actual workplaces do. And then, like, their final example was, like, this investment bank that went all in on outsourcing first to India, then Australia, and, uh, no, the Ukraine and Canada, I believe. Yeah, Ukraine and Canada. And it was a complete fucking shit show and the reason it was a shit show is because when you're building out these sorts of systems the people who use them and the people who make them need to be roughly within the same time zone because how else are you going to support this unholy abomination that you've written and what what we've learned in like you know the past 20 years is that outsourcing doesn't work nearly as well as people believe it does it doesn't even save on labor costs because like it's not you know the year 2000 anymore you're not hiring these people for like the equivalent of five bucks an hour they're getting paid that's very comparable to like you know, um, Europe, UK, US, like, they're being paid, like, actual money. You're not saving anything. So, like, what's what's the point of all this? Why, why would this matter? So, yeah, this <laughs> is... We're probably going to see more of this bullshit. Let's be fair. There's going to be more of this because there is... There are two compelling reasons to get everything back to um, the way things are supposed to be, shall we say. Yeah. Um, and those two compelling reasons are, one, it makes it easy to keep an eye on your workforce. Full stop. I mean, that's kind of part of the advantage of a physical office environment. It's part of why you haven't seen any kind of shift towards this before COVID, even though the technology arguably is was mature sufficiently five years ago to be able to do this and was being used for a significant international collapse already. Um, yeah. And two, there's really a lot of money sunk into all that commercial real estate. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like, this This thing gave me the vibes of, this was written by BlackRock. This was written by, like, WeWork. This was written by some company that has, like, a huge fucking stake in getting people to go back to work in physical offices. 
physical open plan offices, no less, because it's not like we're, you know, showing out for everyone to have their own, you know, isolated booth somewhere. It's like, no, we're, we're showing out for like the endless halls of, you know, <laughs> open plan plague pit. That's what they want to bring back. And, you know, as we've sort of predicted before, there's another one of those, oh, fuck, we called it moments here. <laughs> if anything was going to cause friction with tech workers, and now it looks like a whole lot of other workers, it was going to be the question of remote labor. Yeah. So we're probably, I mean, we're. I'm not going to go so far as to say it's going to be General Strike 2021, mm-hmm. but it might be General Strike 2022. Yeah. And that could happen. Yeah, and it's like at this at this point it's like labor consciousness is starting to tick up a little even in, you know, places where we wouldn't normally expect that. And of course, you know. <sighs> God, it's just is massively fucked. Oh yeah. And it's you know, I, you know, we'll wait and see what happens, but that's kind of where we're at right now is it looks like the powers that be are going right. Everything back to work, chop, chop. We need things to function the way they normally do and are expecting people to hop too. And that's not happening. Yep. So shall we move on? Sure. The meme stonks are back, apparently. This time it's AMC. (laughs) Granted, AMC was one of the ones last time, too. Yes. Uh, It's like, yeah, I, I can, like, see a thesis for why they would fucking jump and now it's they basically just went and they're like yeah we're we're gonna start issuing stock you should not buy it um but like if you're one of these meme retail investors yeah buy our fucking stock and and what's kind of like i think the biggest takeaway from this is you know we were having all kinds of fun with this we even did like a whole special on it when this shit went down around GameStop that this definitely posed a problem Mm -hmm. for Wall Street but it wasn't like an existential crisis or anything it was just one more thing that they just don't fucking need right now (laughs) and now it's actually kind of looking like they have figured out a way to cope. Yeah. Or at least AMC has quite impressively by turning around and going, right. Um, we're going to fucking roll with this shit. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to pay a company to like sell some stock. We're going to spend about, 
11.5 million stock units into existence, which we may or may not sell. Um, and you should not invest in this, but if you're a retail investor, you should totally invest in this. Um, and it's like, yeah, they're, they're just going to ride this because in part, because like the boost in their stock price did help them stay above water for a little while as a going concern. And now it's starting to look like you know, major fear chains might just make it through this. Emphasis on might. Maybe. Yeah. Like, the end is in sight for a lot of these restrictions. And, well... <laughs> like, what this also... Like, what's kind of telling about this particular incident is that, you know, AMC's done it. They pulled it off within 24 hours. They've managed to basically use becoming a meme stock as a source of basically a, to turn it into a freaking slush fund. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's probably what we're going to see going forward is if a company gets tagged as a meme stock they're going to be like all right let's get ready to issue some stock because we're going to see a temporary bump in value and all this stock we hawk is going to be free money yeah and also this gives them some flexibility in dealing with unwanted short positions which gamestop did not have at the time what and gamestop was also like nothing like that had ever happened before oh yeah like that freaked the bastards out because it caught them off guard the pores aren't supposed to be able to fuck with the market yeah and <laughs> i mean pores is relative but you get the idea yeah and other news oh yeah this one's quite fun we're seeing the highest jump in u.s home prices since 2005 if you're hearing the twilight zone theme don't worry that's normal yeah if you also heard the shake hands with danger riff um that's also normal that's also normal um don't don't worry about it. The average price of a home in metropolitan areas in the U.S. was 13.2% in March compared to a year earlier, according to the March S&P CoreLogic Case Shore National Home Price Index. Um, that's according to the Wall Street Journal. Um, and, like, you know anecdotes like i can see it i've seen how how fucked the market is now um because it's like you used to be able to like buy a place for like 300k in this metro area in the portland area and now it's more like to get something halfway decent you're looking at more like 425 450 like it's going up 
something's wrong. Especially because you can see, particularly in places that have been big hubs for the tech industry, like, for example, San Francisco, just record numbers of for rent, for sale, and for lease signs, like, popping up like mushrooms after a rainstorm. Yeah. This is, like... It this feels like somebody is really plowing money into speculative assets again. Yeah, and it's like the inventory has been cleared out. That's part of what's driving it. But also, it's like there a lot of this just doesn't make any sense. Is the thing like there's. In some cases, like, yeah, there there are explanations, but in others, like, I, I don't know. I, I've got it's, a bad feeling about this. I've got a really bad feeling about this. I, I'm getting, like, like, 2006 vibes again. <laughs> the, this is, yeah, looking a little too, especially because we've got every single other, like, fucking reason to believe that this economy is on very dangerous ground Mm -hmm. particularly with shit like the growing cryptocurrency bubble and all this other just take your pick so much stupid fucking bullshit as well as the supply chain crisis and all kinds of other shit that this doesn't look like there's anything to support the value of homes going up especially because in some of these major metropolitan areas demand is not tracking with what's happening with the prices it's not like we're seeing a surge in home buying yeah i mean at least not in any sources we've seen yeah like even in the position i'm talking about it's not like there's some new source of inventory it's just that like the existing inventory that usually pops up is going off the market very quickly because there and a lot of the evidence is pointing to it not being like people buying it I mean we're I've looked at some of these places and it's like bought by, you know, some weird shell company name bought by another weird shell company name. I'm like, Oh, this is not good. (laughs) This is an organic. (laughs) Like we've seen this story before. This is, we're trying to take bullshit money and get it value. So yeah, that speaking of, playing a fucking shell game with the economy. We've got some fun stuff coming from the International Energy Agency, which is one of those alphabet soup groups you've probably vaguely heard of. Um, And their job is just to monitor what's going on in the world of energy on a global scale. Um, They're one of the many different things that spun out of the United Nations. And on May 10th, and we're a little slow in getting to this, but this one's pretty big, they released their latest World Energy Outlook. Hmm. 
And in that outlook, they went into quite a bit of detail on the expected costs in terms of things like tons of minerals for sustaining a transition from fossil fuels to green energy um carbon tracker the carbon tracker initiative um did a breakdown of this where they very solidly pointed out you know hat tip to them for writing this because they're our, our big source on this is that the iea seems to actually be really burying the lead something fierce because they don't <laughs> want to hurt the fossil fuel industry's fees. yeah like for instance they're complaining that of all the critical materials needed for a car um you need 210 kilograms of critical minerals to make a average size battery pack compared to like 45 kilos for like computers and such for a nice car and meanwhile a megawatt of solar generation capacity needs 6.5 tons of critical materials compared to a coal plant which only needs three tons and i was i assume these figures are metric tons by the way so um you know 6500 kilos versus 3000 and they're they're basically lying with numbers is the thing because most of that uh, coal input is actual coal like with a solar plant you know you do have like attrition of panels eventually you know rocks fall things break um, controllers short out all sorts of stuff shit happens yeah so it's like it's not that like there's zero required inputs for a solar um, for a megawatt scale solar rate once it's set up but it's also rarely you know you have to replace the whole field in its projected lifetime. It's more like you have to replace like 1% or 5%. In some cases, maybe 10 to 20 if something particularly bad happens. And as Carbon Tracker Initiative points out, anything involving fossil fuels requires continuous inputs of millions of tons of fossil fuels to function. Like, these costs that the IEA is putting out are there. These numbers are not wrong. It's that they're misrepresenting that these are upfront costs. This is not, like, the sustaining cost that over the same lifetime of a solar plant is going to lead to, like, several orders of magnitude greater coal and oil consumption. Yeah. Like, yeah, they're... Uh you still need some error so like the generator and the control systems and all of that stuff but you also need like 350 kilos of coal for every megawatt you generate and you need that over the entire lifetime of the plant's operational use 
So, <laughs> so, so like, aside from that, the IEA is really playing an interesting game with the numbers here. <laughs> the biggest takeaway is we now have hard data that when we've been saying this is an engineering problem, this is a political problem, this is not a science and technology problem. We now have hard data that we can point to that says, what's well, going to take this many millions of tons of this kind of material, which are available in these quantities and these places. And many of these are quite abundant. Um, and most importantly, we now have hard numbers that show. And once we do the initial, you know, ramp up of capacity, demand will taper off and stabilize. Yeah. Like probably one of the biggest takeaways from the IEA's own data is that based on their own analysis of the renewable energy sector, price shocks in these minerals don't do shit to currently existing capacity. It will put a crimp in the new solar panels that are being manufactured for the duration of the price shock, but you're not going to see shit like the 1973 oil shock when the quadrupling of the price of oil at the pump meant everything went fucking kerflooey. <laughs> yeah. Like, this is... There's no pass-through effect. Yeah. And that's, that's major. That is so major. Like, that is a stable state economy. <laughs> And frankly, we need that. <sighs> and it's what this, you know, just to give a short version of this, because, you know, we'll probably have to do a whole special on this later. This shows the material basis of not just neoliberal capitalism, but industrial capitalism as we know it is shifting beneath the feet of the capitalists. Mm-hmm. This doesn't mean they can't figure out a way to do some kind of green capitalism with what emerges after. They certainly could. And there's all kinds of awful ways they could do that in the most cyberpunk fashion imaginable. But it does suggest that the boom and bust cycles that we've been told are normal might actually become a thing of the past because the boom and bust element in energy generation is going to cease to be a thing. Like wall street could still make boom and bust bullshit. Yeah. I mean, at the very least it's going to be, you know, to a much smaller scale than like, you know, the oil shocks of the long crisis. <sighs> it's yeah <laughs> so shall we move on <clears throat> yep I think that gets us to the very lovely stuff going on in the world of logistics oh yeah i know we've been on this drum a lot but <sighs> it's got a great sound in <laughs> fairness 
it's got incredible tone it's really resonant and it you know shakes the teeth out of every single person in the room Mm -hmm. oh yeah so um the wall street journal um has noticed that chinese factories are apparently placing delays on orders And, Which is all kinds of fun. Oh, yeah. And it's not just, you know, the usual sectors that have been affected thus far, like, you know, anything with electronics in it. It's everything. Everything. Like, across the board, no exceptions. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going, hey, folks. We can't keep up with this shit anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, which, you know, that does take a giant steaming turt on just-in-time logistics and neoliberalism as it's supposed to function. But hey, <laughs> <laughs> like, a lot of what's driving this is like raw materials costs. Um. And while, you know, they have been trying to pass those on to, like, you know, everything downstream of them, unfortunately, it's not working nearly as well. Um, Some manufacturers have stopped taking orders entirely uh, for set durations. And that's mainly to, like, get this pricing thing under control. Um, and it's this is more of what we've been reporting on for the last like since 2021 started really Mm -hmm. the fucking gossamer web of shipments that are supposed to be there yesterday is coming apart at the slightest contact with this thing called reality refuses to conform to your capitalist expectations you stupid fucks yeah it's like there there's a lot of reasons why these things are happening but it's getting pervasive enough that like Companies that are immediately downstream of raw material providers are suffering. It's no longer like, like a lot of the chip production stuff is not a raw materials problem. Unless you're talking about water, of course. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But like a lot of this stuff is well, our raw material requirements are rising in terms of price. We can't recover all of those costs by jacking up the wholesale price. Um, we're going to have to stop production. Um, some of this is to meet like pollution quotas. Some of this is they just got to stop. But Sometimes they just don't have the like space in the line or in the build order to be able to accommodate it 
sometimes they don't have labor um because they're already backlogged from all the orders they had to delay because of the whole covid shutdown dumping a bucket of wrenches in the global economy yeah like everything is out of sync and that these sort of moves have reached this stage of production doesn't bode well and that kind of leads us into um the other story which would be that new york times article they finally noticed um the thing that we were talking about a couple weeks ago where they you know remember that bloomberg piece that was all like oh shit why is everything running out well now the new york times is going hey look uh, there are appears to be a supply chain crisis in the economy yeah and it is affecting everything and they're like the the root cause is just-in-time manufacturing just-in-time logistics this is not working anymore but at the same time there are a bunch of people who are very convinced that consumers will not accept any sort of change of prices due to supply chain resilience. And I mean, okay, I guess. I don't personally. Maybe. I, I personally think that, like, that's bullshit in part because, well, let's put it this way the system's not working. Um, the system is not working. You you probably noticed this if you like order a bunch of shit on Amazon. Like half the very third party people can't do it. I mean, even Amazon first party fucks up orders all the time, or you know just doesn't have stuff in stock um, that you could have gotten before the pandemic. And it's like at this point, I am not convinced that that's. A meaningful argument we were already paying higher prices we're already no longer able to expect like two-day delivery on things whether or not that's a good thing i'll leave to you but like nothing is working as these people think it should like the whole promise of the just-in-time economy is dead you know, this, uh, these production uh, deadlines for uh, consumption, they don't mean anything anymore. Like, everything is backlogged, everything is held up, everything costs more. Um, and, like, you know, we're, we're seeing the consequences of it. And it's like, no, I, I think people would pay for you know, for all of this to stop and for, like, things to get back to something approaching normal, because this is ridiculous. Yeah. And I think what is this absolute shamble fuck that we've got now is going to force some kind of significant shift in the way we do economics and, like, economic policy and everything else. Because clearly this leaving everything to the market and telling the private sector to do whatever it wants and the public sector just has to get the hell out of the way mm -hmm. is not working. 
and the promises of neoliberal capitalism are not coming true. So what's left? <laughs> like, it feels almost like it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that they're going like, well, but we don't think people will accept this. It's like, well, you're not giving them the option and you're probably not going to have the fucking money to do it at this rate. So... <laughs> Yeah, like, I think that, like, it says something that the New York Times is now seeing it. And they're like, oh, right. This might there are these things called material conditions. This might be a problem. <laughs> if things can't get from point A to point B, this could present a challenge to this thing called having a functional economy, society, insert here mm -hmm. <sighs> I guess that gets us to our last word yeah which I guess you could say is this recovery isn't Yeah, I I don't know how else to say it. It doesn't exist. This recovery does not exist. Or rather, it's, as we've been saying repeatedly, this thing is way more brittle than, than the business press wants to imply it is. Like, nothing... Nothing is working. Nothing is returning to anything like normal. Normal was pretty... F yeah. Like, normal was pretty fucked up. But in a few ways, it was better than this. Now, we don't even have that. It's just fucked. Everything is just fucked. With the caveat, of course, of that normal was better because, you know, it actually kind of ran the train on times kind yeah. of kind of yeah occasionally <laughs> as opposed to completely not mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like all of the slack in the system that made it still function is gone now and now like everything to do with production is being yanked around and consumers are yanked around with them and this whole frictionless capital thing the dream is dead I don't know what else to tell you people it's dead it has ceased to be and not only is it dead but the very things that have made it possible like the sort of digital technologies that are now fueling the cryptocurrency catastrophe look like they're on track to uh, completely fuck <laughs> what's left of the functional economy by creating a bubble of 
just unbelievable proportions. Like I never thought Wall Street would manage to make a bubble that would also completely cannibalize the one industry that became that was like absolutely vital to making neoliberalism even happen <laughs> in the form of computer technology. Like I never thought they'd manage to just completely like mine the well and the shaft to this extent. Yep. But they gone and done it. That they did. Jesus fuck. So now it's they've done the stupid. They have set themselves up for failure and because, you know, capitalism is really great at in like incentivizing actions that make sense on a micro scale but are really fuck off stupid on a macro scale everyone's doing what you're supposed to do in a crisis like this mm-hmm. which is run for the lifeboats fuck the women and children <laughs> punt them over the side if you must <laughs> watch this space but it's like this whole thing is just slowly rotting away and like you know our capitalist masters are like dimly aware that there's a problem and the people at the point of production know there's a problem because it's you know it keeps them up at night but like Every the politicians are asleep at the wheel. The bourgeois politicians are just completely asleep at the wheel. Even if they were willing to do something and able to do something, it's like there's no will to do it. Or at least insufficient comprehension of the sheer scale of like they have gotten so used to, I think, at least in the United States, like you're not seeing this in the European Union. You're actually seeing like shit in the eu generally that's like oh wow the european union parliament appears to actually exist and do things yeah um like whether you agree with those things or not they are reminding the world they actually can do things and some of those things are actually useful from an economic and public policy perspective but the u.s you know they seem to really have just down the lead paint smoothie of government cannot help the old best thing it can do is step aside and let like capitalism man save the day the hidden capitalism man will appear to save us all from the crisis because <laughs> that's how it's always supposed to work trust us it's just like I can understand why they've gotten themselves into this kind of stupidity, mm-hmm. but this just sort of hammers home. It's going to be up to us or save ourselves. We, these guys just don't get it or the ones who do get it are not acting with anywhere near the kind of urgency that they should given circumstances 
So I guess that's it. Yeah. And I guess just one last thing on that is just, you know, going back to our material collapse thesis for a second, we're going to start to see these different, like, disparate chunks of this failing economy just lash around. Like, it's going to be like watching a rabid octopus in its death throes. It's, there's, like, like, we've, this has been said on this show before, and I'm going to come back to it again, because this is vital to understand. The Great Depression did not happen overnight. It wasn't the stock market went boom and suddenly we were at 25% unemployment to the United States and economic collapse worldwide. There was signs leading up to the Great Depression, like the slow implosion of the farming real estate bubble in the United States, Canada, and Australia. The collapse of the London Stock Exchange a week before Black Tuesday because of massive levels of fraud. Mm -hmm. And then the day after Black Tuesday, Wall Street recovered about half of what they lost. And you can see on the Dow Jones that there was a bit of a bubble retrospectively that existed for a couple of years after the market crashed really hard. And the whole like reaching Hoovervilles and one in four Americans out of a job did not happen immediately. It took a couple of years to reach that state of total deterioration. And I think we're on a glide path in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I mean, we don't have, we're not going to have Hoovervilles again. We're probably going to end up calling them Trumpvilles or Bidenvilles. And, you know, the thing is, it's like, it doesn't matter anymore. Like, they, <laughs> you know, economy machines broken. I'm sorry, but that's, that's just what it is. It's broken. The fundamentals are dog shit. And it's running on inertia. Yep. And a lot of clapping for the free market fairy. Yes. Very desperate, please, please, kind of clapping. If only you'd believed. (laughs) Clap harder, damn you. (laughs) I don't care if your palms are bleeding. Clap. So, but I guess that's it. Yep. This has been Chop Shop Economics. We read this shit so you don't have to. Good luck, everybody. Bye, everyone.